Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi. Today happens to be the yard sale of the Ramban, so I'm going to do it on Tuesday rather than uh, Wednesday. It's a week of uh, before Pesach, so my schedule's all out of whack anyway. And I'll just take advantage to knock this one off now. Today, as I said before, the 11th of Nisan is the anniversary of one of the big Rishonim, very big Rishonim, biggest. It's Ramban, not Ramban, for those of you not familiar with what I'm talking about. Not Maimonides, but Nachmanides, Moshe ben Nachman, who lived in northern Spain, right near France. All of his life, he lived in one town all of his life, like me, and uh, uh, became famous there in the 1200s. He born 1194, I think he lived to uh, 1270, I think. So here's somebody who lived right through the 1200s, so what we call the 13th century. Uh, in very interesting times, this is Spain. Spain at that time, as I've mentioned in a couple of these other podcasts, I believe, wasn't a single country, it was broken up with a whole bunch of kingdoms fighting each other. And the general division was between the North and the South, the South being Muslim and the North being Christian. And during the lifetime of the Ramban, the Christians pretty much won and conquered 95% of Spain. They left the, the Muslims only a tiny bit. So he lived through some politically, militarily interesting times. But as far as we know, the Ramban wasn't into international politics or any that kind of stuff. He seems to be a learner-learner. Although he did have a, believe it or not, he was an MD, just like the Rambam. He wasn't a famous doctor like the Rambam, uh, which is kind of understandable, but he was uh, an MD. Now, the Ramban, as I say before, was born and lived in the town Girona, which is north of Barcelona. It's a Garnish town, a little, a little place. It's not far from the Pyrenees Mountains, which is where they divides Spain from uh, France. The Ramban lived in the, let's see now, the eastern part of Spain, which is called Catalonia, or Aragon. They talk a different Spanish, even to this day. It's like a separate Gaelic of Spain. And obviously, this is a boy who, from a little young age, was a genius, uh, really. And he was living in a very interesting times, Yiddishkeit-wise, Torah-wise, in the history of the Sephardim, because Spain had been a center of Torah, Torah scholarship since the 900s. But that all happened in places like Cordoba and Granada, which were in the south under the Muslims. But about 40 years before the birth of the Ramban, that all ended because the Muslims turned on a dime and prohibited Judaism. And that was the end of that. No more yeshivas, no nothing. And any Jew who wanted to remain Jewish had to leave. On the other hand, half of Spain already wasn't under the Muslims anyway, so they weren't affected by this. And that's the part the Ramban lived in. But that northern half of Spain wasn't a big place, as far as we know, of Torah scholarship and learning. Yeah, Jewish communities, you know. Yeah, what we call B-level rabbis, with a few exceptions. Uh, and uh, Yiddishkeit, and especially learning, as we call it, was mediocre. However, and here's the interesting part, since it was Christian, so the northern half of Spain had shaykhs, not with the Muslim world, 
the way the southern half of Spain was like. That's where the Rambama lived. But rather, they had their shaykhs with lands to the north of them in Europe. And the country next door to them is France. Now, you might say like this, what do I care about Spain and France in the Middle Ages? You know, I'm only interested in Jewish stuff. Well, believe you me, it's a big point. Because France, my friends, at the time of the birth of Ramban and his early years, was a Balitosis, the main headquarters of Ashkenazic Jewish scholarship. And that's where the new methods of learning that the Balitosis had evolved was in full flourishing. And if you were one of the few boys in Spain, Sephardim, and you wanted to learn really heavy learning, what you ended up doing was going north to France or bringing in an Ashkenazic Rebbe to be a Magachir in your yeshiva at home, something like that, something along those lines. And that is exactly the world Ramban grew up with. So he's Spanish all the way, and his family goes back in Spain all the way. But his influence in uh, Talmud Torah and Gemara and Halacha and all that sort of thing is not Spanish. It's Ashkenaz. Isn't that interesting? And uh, the person who's supposed to have been his Rebbe, who either moved to Spain and gave classes there, which is very possible, just like you had in this country, all these uh, Eastern European Rebbe's that moved here after the Second World War, could, could very well be that that's what happened. Alternatively, it's also possible that the Ramban at a young age, I mean, teenage years, heavy Golul Makam Toro, traveled north to France, as did others, and learned in Ashkenazic yeshivas there. My point is that in Ramban you see a combination of a guy who's a Sephardi, Sephardi, but his way of learning and thinking is Ashkenaz because that's by whom he was molded. Isn't that interesting? Now, as far as we know, he either moved back to that town or stayed there and learned with Rebbe there and turned out to be a big storm, a big cheese, because from a young age, He's writing, you know, the Milchamas Hashem do you have in the back of the Gemara? Those who know him talk about, know him talk about, under the riff, where he's arguing with uh, the Balamor, who's from also Girona, Zrachia Levi of Girona. Um, I mean, Durambam was like 15, 16, 17 years old. Uh, major stuff. Um, Pirushim on the riff and other things like that. He's writing at a very young age. So this is clearly a boy genius. And now I had to add, have to add one more piece to the, to the chong, and that is somewhere along the line, in these very interesting second decade of his life. This must have been unbelievably interesting where he was from the intellectual point of view. I mean, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, those years. Uh, he also encountered, uh, who is it, Rabbi Ezra and Israel, two Kabbalists, two people who are trying to propagandize that you should uh, learn Kabbalah, especially the genius ones. You understand? Maybe it's not for every kid out there but you find the smartest guy in the yeshiva, the smartest guy in the mm -hmm. town, and you hook him, and then you got somebody. And Ramban, without question, was the smartest boy in the yeshiva, the smartest boy in town, and boy, did they hook him. They turned him into a big enthusiast of the Kabbalah. Um, in fact, he's a major uh, person in the transmission of a Kabbalistic system. I won't go in that too much now. So here's somebody who... What's the second? If he's born 1194, so I'm talking about the years 1204 to 1214, or something like that, you know. Early part of the 1200s. Maybe that's a meaning thing to you, but early part of the 1200s. Uh, the Ram Bamma had died in 1204, I think. And uh, in France, Rabbeinu Tom died like 40 years beforehand. And uh, this is the world he's growing up in. 
Now, somehow or other, he must have had a secular education. Because if he eventually became an MD, he had to take some kind of courses, right? Even if he'd studied with a discipleship, had to take some kind of courses. The Ramban has secular education. He wouldn't know it because he's not proud of it. And his whole mahalach of thinking is Ashkenazic. Now, I'll tell you what I mean by that. Drumbon, when he grows up, it gets older and older. So he started giving shiurim to small groups of guys. As far as we know, Drumbon was never a rabbi of a city, and he never was an Abbasin or anything like that. Oh, they must have done certain things of that nature. Uh, he didn't have a large yeshiva, as far as we can tell. On the other hand, he had disciples. So here's just an interesting guy. Here's somebody's a doctor. But obviously, spent is not spending all day long in the medical practice the way Maimonides had to do in the second half of his life. I don't know, you know, I wasn't there, but it can't be. Obviously, he puts in a few hours a day in, in the medical practice, and then he puts in many hours a day into learning Be'iyun, baby, Be'iyun. And um, he gathers together some gifted disciples, often relatives. It's all in one place in Girona. Uh, and little by little, his reputation grows. And next thing you know, they know there's this guy who just happened to be a big Talmud Chacham, is not a rabbi on salary. He supports himself in the best Sephardic style. Remember, the Rambam is opposed to rabbis taking a salary. Uh, but he does the same way. You know, he has, a, he has some kind of a, a practice that he can support himself. And I don't know if he was rich or not or anything like that. Uh, but how, how could the cost of living been in a little place like Girona? And that's where he chose to stay for the rest of his life. Almost. Almost. And now put yourself into this guy who's now, it's the 1220s, it's the 1230s, the 1240s, 50s, 60s. Uh, during all this time, certainly up to the 1260s, life just chugged on. He, he happened to live in the kingdom of Aragon, which was the eastern part of Spain. It so happened to be that the king of Aragon that time was King James I. It so happened to be that King James I was one of these guys who was a big expansionist, uh, always involved in successful wars against the Muslims, always involved in fights with the Pope over his girlfriends and things like that. And uh, as a result, he liked the Jews, and the Jews were fairly well off during his reign. You talk about the Golden Age Jews in Christian Spain, I mean, that's the reign of King James I. So Ramban lived in, quote-unquote, the right time. And he put in several decades uh, into learning Yom Valila and publishing Chidushim, as you know, now, let me uh, take him out of the ordinary, because there are a lot of people that fit the description I just said. A, a key element of historical importance associated with Ramban, listen closely, is that he is the one who transmitted the Ashkenazic style of learning into the Sephardim, or he's the main name associated with that. Prior to the 1200s, uh, the Sephardim had their way of learning, which was more affected by the Arabs, and the Islamic world, this the, the world of the Rambam, uh, this the world of the Rimigash, this the world of Maris Gaius, and uh, what do you call it, Yehuda, Moshe Mechanov, probably names you're not so familiar with, Shmuel, Shmuel Anagin. Uh, it's a whole particular kind of genre of Torah scholarship, which is very analytical, that's true, but it's also, uh, what shall I say, very uh, synthetic. You try to take, you know what I mean by synthetic? The Rambam is a great example of that. You can take a whole bunch of ideas, but you have to crunch them together, it's a big kayach to be able to do that and come up with a, a, a single paragraph or two or three that summarizes a whole lot of information in an organized and clear way of thinking. 
Um, you know, I'll give you an example. Chayalim is good at that. Um, who else? Dara HaShulchan sometimes is real good at that. Certain people have that power. And it really comes from having a very good secular education in the Middle Ages. And you learn uh, how to write well, how to argue well. You learn logic, you learn rhetoric, and that sort of thing. And if you're able to transpose it onto Torah learning, then you're able to take a whole bunch of complex ideas from Shas and wherever and put it together in such a way that people can understand it. As I said, the Rambam shines in this particular regard. That's why we all like the Mishnah Torah so much. Uh, the Ashkenazim are not good at that. It's not their koach, right? Rashi doesn't like that, right? Like that. Tosa doesn't write like that. Uh, the great Ashkenazim, Bishanim, what they do is they are able to uh, analyze little itty bitty things, and then it's up to you to take them all and put them into the general picture. Uh, they're into the particular, and not the general, the prot more than the claw. This is my opinion. That's all I'm sharing over here. Uh, and the Ramban was obviously affected by that. I don't think, me, myself, and I, I don't think of the Ramban as a writer in the same way that you, that, like the Rambam. He's a genius, and he, you know, if, if, if you're in a hard sugi, if you want to know one particular way of explaining, although usually to me, the Ramban is quite hard. I mean, that's my, my take on it. Uh, and his writing style is very obscure uh, for me. But nevertheless, you see he's penetrating, you know, into the essence of the matter, trying to do that. Uh, but you don't see any broad syntheses um, in the uh, style of the Ramban because he brought in the Ashkenazic way of thinking. Now, on the other hand, the Ramban introduced the Tosvist style of learning into Spain and it spread from the Ramban to his gifted students. And the gifted students started yeshivas and things like that. So he's a little bit like the Johnny Appleseed of... Torah learning in Christian Spain in the 12, 13, and 1400s when the Sephardim became pretty doggone big uh, and a galaxy of Rishonim emerged from the Ramban, his students, his students, students, and their students, and so on and so forth. So he's really quite uh, an important historical figure in that particular regard. I hope I'm not speaking too abstractly for you guys, but uh, I'm just throwing at you what comes to mind when you think of somebody of world historical importance like the Ramban and I'm trying to ascertain, uh, you know, to, to uh, zero in on what precisely uh, makes him unique, other than just saying he's a Rishon from, uh, you know, the 1200s. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. Um, let me explain in, in a minute or two. Once upon a time, the Gemara was just out there and there were no art scroll, no Rashi, no nothing. And therefore you had to figure it out on your own, which is impossible. So the only way you could have any chance of mastering any part of Gemara was to have somebody who already knew it teach you, if you're that lucky. I mean, line by line, word by word. Then, skipping over a whole lot, Rashi came along in the ten hundreds, and as we all know, Rashi sort of leveled the playing field, and he explained what's on the page in front of you, so he made the Gemara accessible to a whole, whole lot of more people, but at one level, because Rashi's not dialectical, he doesn't try to take two different cases and in uh, two different places in the Gemara, for example, and and match them together. He just tells you what's in the page in front of you, which was a sign of the great writing skill of Rashi, that he concentrated on giving you what you're seeing in front of you, which is the way you have to start. When he died, his his successors, the Balitosis, as they call him, set as their goal uh, to outdo Rashi, and uh, or correct Rashi, as they put it. And they said, what about the dialectics? Meaning, how do you explain this Gemara to mean this and this over here without taking into account that the Gemara said the similar thing but in a different way over there? Or some other example where you have two different or opposite sounding uh, sources in the Talmudic text, either explicitly or implicitly, 
And uh, as a result, you always end up with a different interpretation than Rashi offers. Rashi is giving the interpretation of the page, just looking at the page in front of you. And then the Tosafists come along and they start looking at the whole Shas as one big unit. And you try to collate, to compare and contrast. And, you know, sort of put side by side different passages in the Talmud. Again, explicit or implicit. And then work out how they all fit together, um, which gives you a different uh, understanding and a deeper understanding. I think I did this here some time ago when I tried to explain about dialectics. And uh, this really was like, uh, you know, something new, or let's put it this way, the Middle Ages was considered really odd. The Ramban is the one who picked this up and brought it to Spain. And when he did it, he didn't call his writings Tosvos, he called them Chidushim. This is what you get to call the Chidushay HaRamban, the new insights. But it's the same thing, the same kind of question, and same sort of answer, maybe a little bit different answer. Therein lies the Shear in your Yeshiva. That Tosvos explains the two different uh, places in the Talmud or whatever or this way, and the Ramban might do it a different way. And then you're off, depending how good of a Rebbe you have. Uh, once the Ramban started, his students and their students and their students all picked up after him. So, Chidushi Arajba, Chidushi Haritva, Chidushi Haran, and so on and so forth. Meaning, the Spanish rabbis in the 1200s and 1300s carried the ball forward that the Ramban had handed to them, which he himself got from his Ashkenazic teachers. So that the Ashkenazic style of learning, what we call the Balitosa style of learning, became heavily ensconced in Spain as well. Christian Spain, northern Spain, but so what? And there is your legacy of the Sephardim. Uh, most people, whether you know it or not, today when they study Ashkenaz and Sephardim, Rishonim, they're referring to the people I just mentioned. Very few people are going into the pre-Ashkenazi, pre-Ramban Sephardic Rishonim. And there are, but you know, much, much less. And so, therefore, in this regard, the Ramban launched a whole uh, wave of uh, Torah study, which made the Sephardim uh, at the same uh, place as the Ashkenazim, and that's why they're the only two ethnic groups that survive in a vibrant way in the Middle Ages, and that's the, what you have down till today. What do you have today? You got your Ashkenazim, you got your Sephardim. Yes, there are a couple other groups, but they're more marginal. They never developed into very big and impressive centers of Torah study, and therefore their culture was kind of anemic and remains so. It's just a food for thought. The Ramban's whole style of thinking is more Ashkenazic, and I'll tell you what I mean, much more hostile to um, Maimonidean philosophy, the attempt to take philosophical ideas and understand the Torah through their lenses, which is a very interesting and nice enterprise if you know what you're doing. The Rambam, very famously, said, if you want to understand the Torah properly, at least in some of his writings, then you have to understand them through the, through the lenses of philosophy. You know, so I'll give you one that's obviously easy and stupid. You know, when it says God is a physical, obviously it doesn't mean God is physical. Well, duh. Okay? But uh, not everybody realizes that God is not only physical in the sense he doesn't have a hand or a, a nose, but he's not physical in the sense that God likes things or dislikes things or, uh, you know, is jealous or sees or talks. Hashem never talks. You know, talking means you have a mouth with a voice box and all the rest of it. And uh, there are lots of examples of that. And I'm not doing justice to this, but I think even you listening to this are probably familiar with the fact that the Rambam, Maimonides, is associated with the attempt to explain the stories of the Torah in a philosophical sense, in a, uh, a kind of logical sense, shall we say, over here. And uh, in the course of that, 
sometimes the Rambam hits a home run, and sometimes not. Now, the Ramban represented the opposite end of the spectrum. People who are very uncomfortable with taking what they saw as a foreign method of analysis. It's a Greek method of analysis. It's a metaphysical method of analysis. And trying to read the Torah through that. They said, listen, we're not Greek. The Ramban says these words. We're not Greek. Uh, we're not Aristotle. It's not our where we got our ideas from. Uh, and you can't measure our teachings from through 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 their um which I say measuring uh, uh instruments. Uh this is an old argument. Basically, uh, metaphysics you can either think is great, you try to figure out what's going on in in the world that's not physical but nevertheless exists. And the only way to do this is through using logic. Alternatively you say what's the point of using logic in a world where you have no idea what exists? <laughs> How do you know it's subject to the rules of logic? Uh that's like saying God is logical. God's not logical, he created logic. God's not anything, the Rambam would say. God's not anything. Because anything you come up with is an idea that God created. So he can't be it. And he can't be good. He can't be bad. can't be smart. can't be this. can't be that. Right? And the Ramban never likes that. You understand? He says, God can be all these things, not in a physical way, but in a mystical way. So that's the thing. The Ramban becomes the great uh, uh, spokesman for mystical approach to Judaism. Mystical means... It's true even though it can't explain, be explained logically. Logic does not comprehend the totality of reality. I'll say it again. Logic, according to this way of thinking, does not comprehend the totality of reality. And uh, he's very eloquent in attacking these kind of points. And you might say, therefore, the Ramban in Hashkafa is the Bar Plukta of the Rambam. However, he does so fully aware of the greatness of the Rambam. And that's why in um, his time, Ramban's time when he was, I guess, in his 30s, and uh, 1230s, there was a big brouhaha in southern France about whether or not the Rambam's teachings were heresy. And uh, you had these uh, right-wingers, like you always have, and uh, they didn't really understand the Rambam, but they meant well. They're real from, you know, I, I won't say in the Torah character, but I'll say just to give you an idea what I'm talking about, or Shlom and R and so forth. And they ended up burning the books of the Rambam. And they appealed to the Ashkenazi rabbis in northern France to condemn the Rambam and his writings. And that's like asking somebody in B'nai Brock today, you know, to, uh, you know, analyze something that's going on, I don't know, in Chicago, <laughs> you know, in, 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 in Cincinnati. I mean, they heard of the place, a lot, but B'nai Brock is a very different reality than America. You understand? And so... Uh, the Ashkenazi rabbis in northern France did do so because as far as they heard, there's some guy named the Rambam who was, who was a big Tamachacham, but it was a Kaifer, you know, or some, something like that. And therefore, they put a Cherem on the, on, on the Sefer Haman, on the Mordevuchim, all the rest mm -hmm. of it. And the Ramban came along and uh, he wrote a very famous letter. It's in the Chevelle collection to the rabbis of northern France. And he said, yes, stay out of this. I agree with you. I'm from me also, but stay at it because you don't understand the Mitzvahs down here in Spain, and you have the Rambam all wrong. The guy meant well. I myself, the Rambam says, disagree with a lot of what he writes, especially in the Morning Vukum. That is true, but there's no question that the Rambam uh, was a makar of a welt of people. There's a lot of people who go off the derech if you force them into a very right wing way of thinking, uh, and you don't have to. And uh, he was all ashamed Shemayim, and therefore the bottom line is like this. 
The Rambam is a great god all. You have to t- give him total respect. You don't have to agree with everything he said. <laughs> right? Some things I can sharply disagree with. And he certainly does. Later on, if anybody wants to know what are the controversial teachings of the Rambam, Maimonides, in the Guide for the Perplexed, in the Murnabuchim, all you have to do is read the uh, commentary in the Chumash from the Ramban, which is classic. And every time something comes up, he'll say, the Rambam says this and he's all wrong. Like in the beginning of Pasha Vayera or something like that, you know, about the about the angels. Or uh, he, now we're in, in Vayikra, he blasts the Rambam for his analysis of Carbonus. Fine, so I strongly disagree with you. Strongly disagree with you doesn't mean I don't know from you. It doesn't mean I'm not aware of what a guttle you were. And, you know, the Mishnah Torah is just amazing. Uh, like I said, on certain points, uh, you can say that, uh, you know, the Rambam was too far to the left for us. But uh, in everything else, it shouldn't affect it. It's a very interesting way of looking at things, right? Not not everybody is like that. Um, and just give you an idea of the sort of broad sense. Here, here you have a, a, a mamsha, a very typical statement from Ramban, who at the end of the day has one foot standing in Ashkenaz and one foot standing in Sfarad. He's a Sephardi Shabbat but he understands the Ashkenazim, Shabbat Ashkenazim, which not many uh, Rishonim were like that, and therefore affords him this very interesting angle of vision. The Ramban, as I said before, was into mysticism and Kabbalah, big big time. However, he doesn't talk about it. The real Kabbalah, shut up. <laughs> and the Ramban actually says that in his introduction to the Chumash and Elders. If you know anything about that, shut up, you're not supposed to talk about it. Kabbalah Elohim Hester Dover, as they say. The, whoever talks about it shows he doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> right? And although at the same time, you see when you read the Ramban's introduction to Chumash, he's a very conflicted, because he would like to. So he's sort of like, you know, he's always flashing some information, but then you know, closing it up. Uh, he wants to share it, but you can't. Uh, and that's because he was, he was the real thing. I'll tell you why. I mean, what do I know? I'm just, this is just an opinion. I'll tell you why I think Ramban, his generation, were very good when once he got into Kabbalah. They lived in the 1200s. The year 1240, 1240 CE, 1240 AD, the Christian year 1240, that's 5,000 years, right? After all, today is 57, what, 79. So go back. It's the year 1240 was the year 5,000. So that's the fifth millennium. Uh, the, then it's coming the last one. Or something like that. You know, so the world will last 6,000 years and blow up. Or uh, maybe it means up to the seventh. All we know is the fifth millennium is going to be something really amazing. And I'm sure they, I'm sure, no question in my mind, they thought Mashiach was around the corner. And I mean it. I'm serious. And as a result, uh, this is, you know, heating up the mysticism. What's the messianic era going to be like? And, uh, you know, do you see a greater hisgalus of uh, God's presence? And can you notice new things in the Torah through different methods of mystical analysis? It's a very, very interesting phenomenon. I can't do justice to it over here. Just trying to show you what a complex reality uh, the intellectual world of the Rabban inhabited. It's just, just very interesting. Even though he lived in a small town the whole time. Right? Didn't go around the world, didn't go and make a whole rush or taram. Now, I don't know if he never paid a visit to Barcelona, which is nearby. Maybe he did. Barcelona was the capital of the kingdom. Maybe he did. But as far as we can tell, I told you before, with him, he got problems because we don't know much about him at all. There were some historians who said he knew where his house is, and they know what his Christian name was, De La Porta, but in reality, the, the truth is they don't. And so, we would like to know more about the Ramban, 
and uh, you know uh, we know a little bit about his personal life, you know, but not much. And there are many famous legends, many legends about the Ramban. But guess what? The legends are not true. <laughs> you know about his wife and about his kids and all that. They're just not true. When I say they're not true, how do I know they're not true? There's no basis that they're true. They pop up in later swarm, and there's no, there's no no source for them whatsoever. So I can do the same thing. I'll make up a story right now, and then you tell me, how do you know it's not true? You see? So this is the problem, like I told you when I started, and when you deal with the Ramban, you, you, there's, it's, it's hard to get at the man, you know? Now, um, but it is true that he's very preoccupied with messianic stuff, with trying to explain to fellow Jews how the Mashiach is going to be in one way or another. It's clear that they're living in a Catholic country in which the Catholic Church was on a real roll. And in his time, the Catholic Church was in a very impressive mode in which they had all their big brains working, I mean this, working on spreading the faith and trying to convert the Jews and the Muslims. And they had some guys with big IQs doing it. And so there's no question that Jews heard all kinds of talk from the Christians about uh, the real coming of Messiah, the Christian version of the coming of Messiah and all that. And Ramban writes about this, where he got the Savior Gul, excuse Savior Gul, and things of that nature. Um, a lot of this culminated, I think we know, in 1263. So that means that uh, he's born in 1194. So he was 70 years old when the king called him to participate in that debate that I think everybody's familiar with, the famous Vicuach Ramban, the disputation of Nachmanides in Barcelona at the royal court against the ex-Jew Pablo Cristiani. Here's a ex-Yeshiva guy. <laughs> By the way, it's just a cute scene. Here's some dude that learned in Yeshiva. You know, some guy was in there Israel, Lakewood for a while, and then it didn't work out. By the time it's over, he became a guy, and became a Galach, and now he's up against Ramban. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? It's just an interesting scene. Uh, and it was clear that the king and the Christians regarded him as the main Jew. So that just speaks more, that speaks volumes. Because uh, we don't know much about him, but clearly they held him to be the main Jew. The idea being, therefore, he's called to be the spokesman for Judaism in the disputation. And the idea was, if you can persuade and convert the Ramban, then all the other Jews of the kingdom will convert as well, which was probably true. <laughs> the only thing is, they didn't have much of a chance. Uh, and the Ramban did not want to participate, but the king says, I insist on it, but I'll give you freedom of speech. There's a long discussion, maybe I'll do another podcast one time, about the very piquant reality of the Ramban's disputation at Barcelona. Now is not the time to go into it. I've already spoken long enough. All I can say is that um, uh, he and the uh, other guy, Pablo Christian, went at it. The Christian guy get to get, get, gets to ask all the questions. You know, that's how it is. It wasn't really a debate. It's more like, I'm the pitcher, and you're you're the uh, the, the batter, and uh, anytime you strike out, I win. <laughs> and I get to throw all the balls, as many as I want. You have to hit every single ball. If you miss one single ball, that means you lose the game. That's basically how it works. And so he would throw out him all these challenges, and Ramban, in his way, had to answer all the kashas and whatever arguments on Judaism. The weird part of it being that the Christian guy... Pablo and the church behind him was willing to base the disputation on, on the argument they can prove the truth of Jesus not from the Bible, which of course all the missionaries say, but they can prove it from Shas, from the Talmud. That's a heck of an argument, you understand? That is one heck of an argument. 
Now, I'm not going to go into the uh, actual points right now because the hour is late. I think I, I might touch on it in an earlier podcast once. But anyway, um, by the time it's over, it lasted a couple of days, and it wasn't going anywhere. And uh, because whatever this guy comes up, the other one comes up with a counterpart. It's all verbal anyway. So it's not like you can prove something. You're dealing with the world of the invisible now, after all. And it's not about getting a truth. It's about scoring points, like in a presidential debate. It's not about the truth. It's about saying, I won, you know. And the Catholic Church was counting on the fact that they would be able to put out a version that they won. And this would discombobulate and confuse the Jews. The Ramban, of course, didn't want this to happen. He stayed in Barcelona for an extra week to be there on Shabbos in case the Christians try to make a claim that they won. And indeed, that Shabbos, the king of Aragon, James I, and a bunch of bishops uh, came into the shoal in the middle of davening Shachris. Just imagine that scene. This is uh, uh, unique in the Middle Ages. The Christian ruler ran into a synagogue, Dafka on Shabbos, with a whole bunch of galachim with crosses and this and that and the other in there. First of all, everybody in the shoal must have made in their pants. It's the scariest thing you ever saw in your life. It's in Spain. They can burn everybody at the drop of a, of a hat. And, uh, you know, and you're, <laughs> and you're the chazan, you're the rabbi, you're the Valkyrie. I mean, just, 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 just try to do that. And then the king asked for, in other words, he insisted, he should give the sermon. Instead of the rabbi giving a speech, he should give the sermon. Well, what are you going to say? And so the king got up and started preaching a whole sermon in Christianity. And uh, I want you to understand, from the point of view of the king, he thinks he's doing the matova, because there's no bigger tova you can do for the Jews. And when he finished the Ramban, insisted on giving a retort to the king, which is unbelievable chutzpah, but on the other hand, it's, it's, it's for the Jewish religion. What are you going to do? If this is one of you, Hargwayabra. And he got up and he refuted uh, what the king said. And uh, and it's interesting, the king did not harm him. And uh, the next day, the king called him and he said, yes, I know I promised you that no harm would come to you from participating in this debate. And I would protect you personally. I can't do it. You wrote a book explaining the debate from your point of view. Well, he said, well, the Christian guy put out a book saying he won. So I want to put up a book in Hebrew and say, I won. And the king said, I got no problem with that, but the Pope does. And the bishops and the popes, and especially the priests, what was it? The Dominicans, I think, was the uh, order of friars. They're out to burn you. And I, I really don't have the power to, to, to block it. And I don't want to hurt you. I like you. Uh, you spoke very well. And the king said like this, I never heard a false position defended so well. You understand? He's not Jewish. So he's saying to the Jewish guy, I never heard the false position, namely Judaism, defended so well. And he gave him uh, uh, some money and he said, listen, I'm your friend. Get out of here. Leave the country. I'm telling you for your own good. I pro- I'm sorry about it. I promised this wouldn't happen. Things got out of hand and it's beyond my control. So I'm trying to save your life. Say, so just get out of here. I can hold the, the, the arrest up you know, I can uh, gum up the works and delay the uh, police and all that, but not forever. So go home, get your stuff in order, and get on a ship and get out of here. That is why the Ramban, at the age of 6970, uh, left Spain, Girona, where he spent all of his life, got on a boat and moved to Israel. Uh, he moved to Israel just at the time when the Crusades were being wiped out by the uh, Muslims. And uh, in 1270, I think, is, I believe, no, 1290s when Akko fell. But the Muslims were, were having the upper hand already. And I think everybody knows he lived the rest of his life in Israel, only a couple years. In his 70s, uh, he wandered around. I'm sure in his mind, 
this must have been connected with the Mashiach is about to come. But he gave a speech. Uh, his Rosh Hashanah Drasha is given to the Ashkenazic Kolel in Akko. Isn't that interesting? There's the Ashkenazic connection again. And uh, if it's Israel, Yerushalayim, and all the rest of it, they say he started the show there. We'll never know. You know, you hear Ramban Shul, I don't know how true that is. Uh, I mean, I don't know the actual facts. There are a lot of different versions about whether this part is true or that part is true. Um, and that's where he wrote the Pirish on the Chumash, which to me is extremely interesting. It must be he had it and he redid it, because you can't write the whole thing from scratch when you're in your 70s or running away uh, in, in in Israel. But uh, And he died there. We don't know exactly where he died. Again, they say this place is the grave and that place is the grave. But when you go by that, there are a lot of so-called graves in Israel, and they're not uh, true. So the Ramban left a a, a interesting legacy. The most important legacy from our point of view today, I would say, is that he left us Sfarnim because his students and their students and their students and their students built up uh, and had yeshivas and students in their day, and they became the the competitors with the Ashkenaz. Even though, as I said before, the Ramban's tradition, Mesora, is an Ashkenazic one, but then they Sephardiized it, didn't they? And so that's what you're doing yeshivas today. You have the same kind of questions appear in Tosis, appear in the Chidushi Ramban, Chidushi Ritva, Chidushi Rajba, Chidushi Ran, and so on and so forth, similar places. Uh, the answers might be different. Then the question becomes, why does Ramban say this? And why does the Rajba say that? And why does Tosis say something different? And they have to explain that. Now you're earning your pay, your, your, your pay as a Rebbe. Oh boy, I've really gone uh, over overboard on this. I expected to talk 15 minutes, but that's a joke on me. Uh, but anyway, this is a very significant uh, uh, thumbnail sketch today. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.